Isaiah 33. I'm going to read from verses 5 to 14. Please feel free inside the privacy of your car. If you want to read out loud, that would be fine. Isaiah 33, verse 5. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. And strength is salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Behold, their value ones shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man seizeth. He hath broken the covenant. He hath despised the cities. He regardeth no man. The earth mourneth and languisheth. Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Sharon is like a wilderness. Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. You shall conceive chafe. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime. As thorns cut up, shall they, shall they be burned in the fire. Hear ye that are far off what I have done. And ye that are near, acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Listen to verse, this part in verse 14. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? Our text this morning that I'll be focusing some time, a little bit about halfway through, is right here in verse 14. Sometimes the, the verses of Scripture that are life transformational, that get our attention, that move us from a place of complacency or stir us up, are verses that have questions. It is not Isaiah speaking in verse 14. It's God himself. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burning? Father, we thank you today that the word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And that the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. We pray this morning that you give us wisdom. We ask this morning that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from thy law. I pray even right now as we are just thinking about, and our interest is piqued right now about what this verse means. We'd say like David when he was at the hill of Nob and with the priest Ahimelech. He saw the sword of Goliath and he says, give me that for there's none like it. We pray that your word would be the precious seed sown into good soil. 
whether by live stream or here present physically here on the parking lot, I pray every heart would be good soil upon which the Word of God falls upon. We pray your Word would be a fire in our bones, raging within us, a hammer that breaks apart the, the, the stony ground, and a sword that pierces asunder to the dividing of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrows, and would be a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. Heavenly Father, we need you today more than ever before. We need to hear the voice of heaven speaking to us from Isaiah 33. May God be glorified today. I pray for enablement. I pray for strength. I pray for the fullness of the Spirit, the power of God. Lord, I pray this morning you'd help me to feed the sheep as you make them to lie down in green pastures. And you lead them beside the still waters. Restore our souls, we pray this morning. Give us an old-fashioned revival, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some world religions, associated with some world religions, is a practice called firewalking. Firewalking is when an individual walks barefoot over a bed of burning hot coals. What people like you and I probably don't realize is that when we look at that, we think, well, how does that person do that and not get burned? And coals, by their nature, have a low capacity for heat. So the combination of a person walking barefoot on coals, which on the surface don't have a high capacity, and the sweat from their feet, if they walk briskly across those coals, it basically feels like walking on hot sand on a hot day, but it really doesn't burn their feet. There are no blisters or anything like that. And fire walking has been seen as a rite of passage for individuals. It symbolizes the test of one's faith. It is one thing to walk on fire. It is another thing to live in the fire, to dwell in the fire. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 1, is the last of six prophecies of woe that the Lord gives through the prophet Isaiah. You've hung with me. We've looked at five previous woes. Now we're looking at the sixth one. This sixth woe is not against Judah. It's not against Jerusalem. It's against the nation of Assyria. To understand this passage of Scripture, we need to go over to 2 Kings 18, which we're not going to do this morning. But in 2 Kings 18, we have there in the Scriptures the whole background to this passage. In 2 Kings 18... We see king, the king of Assyria, who is a his name is Sennacherib, the general or captain of his army, Rabshakeh. We see King Hezekiah. We see his princes and emissaries, and we see the city of Jerusalem. In this passage of Scripture, the key thought we want to look at today is that the most important thing about a difficult experience or about a trial is what we get out of it. What is God trying to teach us? What is God wanting us to learn from a trial experience? Several years ago, a good preacher friend of mine who's a frequent speaker here at our church, you would know him. He's been here many times. He'll be here later this year, Lord willing. First time he came, we went out to lunch, my wife and him and he and his wife. And uh, somehow the conversation kind of gravitated towards an event they had at their church several years before 
were men that had many years of service in the church that they wanted to recognize and honor. They decided that Sunday evening they would have a special service recognizing and acknowledge that man for his years of service to the Lord. man that meant very much to uh, this pastor's heart. And a man who'd been on staff there, another man who'd been on staff for a long time who was, took care of all the maintenance and things of that nature, decided to check all the lighting that was above. And from the ground to the ceiling was about 30 feet. And this man who typically walked in on a, on a, on a, on a device there, kind of like a, a lift, did as he normally did. But on that particular Sunday afternoon, as he was checking everything about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, for some reason he did put on a harness for safety purposes. He just had done it many times and knew what he was doing, did put on a harness. Something happened. That that man accidentally fell off the lift. He fell head first down into the pews, probably hit his head on a pew, and died instantly when he hit the ground, 30 feet from above. Needless to say, it was a just a very shocking moment for the church, my pastor friend. What was what supposed to have been a celebration that day did not happen to be a celebration. It turned out to be a Sunday evening of mourning and sorrow and prayer for the family. And the church recovered from that. But just a few months after, literally six months after that, the same man who they were going to celebrate that day, and they did not, that man had a heart attack, and he passed away and went home to be with the Lord. As the pastor was sharing the story with me, I'm just imagining our building, which at that time we were still in the main building. I was imagining, what if that happened to one of our, what if that happened to one of my men? What if that happened in our church? And we just, the four of us there were just silent. The pastor broke down and just started crying. Even though it happened several years before, he just broke down and started crying. He's weeping about that situation. I had tears in my eyes. I felt like I knew the both men that passed away and went on to be with the Lord. And I said, preacher, I said, if you don't mind me asking you, what did the church get out of all that? How did the Lord speak to your church? A good-sized church, a good church. I preached there. It's a great church. He said, Brother Fong, they did not get as much out of it as I hoped they would have. We're looking at a passage of Scripture this morning that looks us right in the face, that punches us in the stomach, that gets us to look at difficulties and experiences and trials and understanding God makes no mistakes in our lives. There is something God wants you and I to learn from every experience. But it's up to us to decide whether we're going to learn or not. I'm going to tell you this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, I'm going to take you through the chapter because I've got to build up to get you right to the main point. So I'm going to go really quickly because I need to spend some time on the main point. But I want you to see what's happening here from 2 Kings 18 and from Isaiah 33 to see what God wants us to learn from our experiences. Number one, I want you to see the pronouncement. In verse 1, God is making a pronouncement against the nation of Assyria. Assyria has now has already destroyed Israel. It's 722 B.C. when Israel is destroyed. Some of their people are taken captive. Now it's 715 B.C. 
In 715 B.C., Rabshakeh, who's the captain or general of the, of the army of Assyria, leads an entourage of 200,000 soldiers up the hill to the city of Jerusalem. They've already conquered the lowlands. In fact, it talks about it here. They've already conquered the lowland villages and cities of Judah. They've taken control of areas of farmland where they grow barley and wheat and so forth. So the food supply has been effective. They're incrementally making their way. And they're now at the place of encircling the city of Jerusalem. King Hezekiah sees this. And he reaches out to the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. He reaches out and says, I don't know what I've done to offend you, but whatever it may be, you probably want some money. He said, look what I'm going to do. And the Bible tells us in this passage of scripture that he gives him something to the tune of like 30 talents of silver, uh, no, excuse me, 300 talents of silver and 60 talents of gold. For those of you not familiar with the, the measuring of a talent, a talent was the equivalent of 90 to 100 pounds. So you figure with me for a minute. Whatever the price, spot prices of silver today, 100 pounds, that's a substantial amount of money. You take 300 talents of that, that's a lot of money. They paid an astronomical amount of money to the king of Assyria to leave them alone. In fact, they made a covenant. The king of Assyria was willing to make a covenant with Hezekiah and the Jews to leave them alone alone. But here's what happened. As we read 2 Kings 18, the king of Assyria breaks the covenant. He has already pocketed the money, which in our equivalent is millions of dollars. He's pocketed the money. He's broken the covenant. He encircles that. He insults Hezekiah. He blasphemes God. And you know what God had to say about that in verse 1? God said, Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou was not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt seize the spoil, thou shalt be spoiled, and when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with me. God made a pronouncement against Assyria for spoiling the cities of Judah and Jerusalem. He took their payment, but he would not honor it. This is God's way of saying, you picked a fight, Sennacherib, but your fight was not with Hezekiah. Your fight was with me. Let me just say this because I could spend all morning on this. Let me just say today, if you're going through a trial of difficulty and the devil's firing some fiery darts, shooting some fiery darts at you, and you're feeling like your flesh is battling against you, and you're dealing with some enemies and some hostilities and difficulties, let me remind you today, they're not just fighting with you, they are fighting with God. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 31, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who shall stand against us? I want to remind you today, your back may be against the wall, and an Egyptian army may be uh, coming after you, or an Assyrian army may circus itself around you or a Syrian army may circle you, but remind yourself always, God fights for you. God is for you. God is not against you. Number one, we see the pronouncement. Number two, would you notice the prayer? When this happens, and this is kind of getting ahead of a future message, Hezekiah leads his people to pray. Notice say tonight, for every head of household, you've got a challenging time, you've got a trial, a difficulty, make prayer your first thing, not your last thing. Make prayer your first thought, not an afterthought. And when they prayed, look at verse 2, O Lord, be gracious unto us, we have waited for thee. Be thou their arm every morning, 
our salvation also in time of trial. When they prayed, they modeled biblical praying. They came to God realizing that for every born-again believer, for every child of God, every saved person, the throne of God is no longer a throne of justice for you. It's a throne of grace. And we can come to that throne of grace and find mercy to help in time of need. And here in verse 2, they were saying, God, O Lord, be gracious to us. May we find grace in your sight. Would you have mercy? Would you have pity? I want to encourage you today, if you're going through some tough times, or you're about to go to some tough times, go to that throne of grace. The Bible says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may take mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Then they said this, Lord, be thou their arm every morning. They were saying, Lord, be the strength that we need as we get up every day. Be the strength that we need as we face our trials. Be the strength we need as as we face our temptations, be the strength we need as we have to deal with difficult people. Be thou their strength. Then he said this, our salvation also in the time of trouble. Lord, when trouble comes, be there to help us. Be there to save us. Be there to deliver us. But notice something else in verse 2 in this prayer. And here's the element of prayer that all of us are barely in the kindergarten doing. That the majority of us, or if not all of us, have a difficult time of doing. As they prayed, they also knew this. They couldn't rush God. They couldn't make God go faster than God's will was. And they said, Lord, we have waited for thee. After you pray, wait. The hardest thing for us to do is wait. Waiting is a spiritual discipline. Waiting is on God is as much an integral part of praying as praying. We must learn to wait on the Lord. Many times God's answer is on the way. We want God's answer yesterday. That's not how God works. God is working a work of grace in us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. God wants you and I to wait. Andrew Murray, if you can get his book on waiting on God, gives 30 devotional thoughts on just how and what it means to wait on God. But he made this statement on his book. He said, he said, I spoke of an army on the point of entering an enemy's territories, answering the question as to the cause of delay. And they said, waiting for supplies. The answer might have also been waiting for instructions or waiting for orders. If the last dispatch had not been received with the final orders of the commander-in-chief, the army dared not move. Even so with the Christian life, as deep as the need of waiting for supplies is, should that be of waiting for instruction. May I encourage you this morning, wait on God. Pray, pray your prayers. Bring your needs before God, but learn to wait on Him. Realize that God is done, doing a good work. It's, it's God which works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. We see the pronouncement. We see the prayer. But notice we later on in verse 5, we see the praise. Now, as we look at 2 Kings 18, God answered their prayer. God intervened. In fact, Hezekiah and the armies of Judah didn't have to shoot an arrow. They didn't have to lift a spear. They didn't have to draw their swords. God sent an angel to deal with Sennacherib's army there. And this is their praise. They said, the Lord is exalted. And by the way, he is exalted. Amen. He's lifted up on high. We ought to praise the name of our God. He said, the Lord is exalted. God is exalted whether it's sunshine 
or in storm. God is exalted whether it's in the sun or in the darkness. God is exalted whether it's good times or bad times. And he says this, for he dwelleth on high. And what they meant by that is God is on his throne. He's never come off his throne. He's always on his throne. The Lord is exalted for he dwelleth on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness and wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. I like that. It reminds us as God is working on our behalf as we praise him with his wisdom and knowledge. He gives stability for our seasons and stability for our problems and stability for our times of, of rejoicing. He says, and the strength of salvation. And then he made this statement in the praise. He said, and the fear of the Lord is his treasure. That's an interesting thought. When we think about the fear of the Lord, we think about holy reverence. When we think about the fear of the Lord, we think about the fact that it's the beginning of wisdom. But Isaiah here is saying, no, not only that, he says the fear of the Lord is his treasure. That reminds me of Proverbs 22.4. By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. You know, if there's anything we need to practice more of, it's the fear of God. It's the reverence of our Lord, of exalting him on high, of knowing that he dwells on high, of realizing God never moves from his throne. And as we fear the Lord, we, rep we rec recognize all the names of God that speak of who he is. He's the Lord who goes to war for us. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord our righteousness. He's the Lord who supplies. He's the Lord our peace. He's the Lord who comes. He's the Lord who's there for you and I. I mean, we can thank God today that the fear of the Lord is our treasure. We see the pronouncement. We see the prayer. We see the praise, but notice we see a problem in verses 7 and 9. Isaiah takes us right back to the moment when Rakshaka circled Jerusalem. 200,000 Assyrian soldiers. When they looked out over the walls... It looked like an innumerable host of men. Verses 7 and 9 help us to see what went through their hearts. Notice in verse 7, Behold, their valiant ones shall cry without. He was saying there that even the soldiers, the men that were valiant, the men that were courageous, they were broken, they were crying. You know, it doesn't matter how strong we are, whether physically or in our self-will. There comes a time God puts something in our life that, where he breaks us. And he gets us to cry. And he says, behold, even the valiant ones shall cry without. He sent the ambassadors of peace. And when you read 2 Kings 18 and later on, I think it's Isaiah chapter 36. We read of the princes and the ambassadors of Hezekiah. They were weeping, and they were weeping, and the valiants were crying because you know what they were thinking? God has abandoned us. God said he's there for us, but where's God? Where's God in all this? Is God going to help us? I mean, look outside the walls. We're, we're about to be besieged. What happened to Israel is going to happen to us. Notice something else. In verse 8, he describes the condition throughout all of Judah. They said, the highways lie waste, and the wayward man seizeth. They're saying, there's nobody traveling. 
There's no, it's almost like everything being shut down. The highways are empty. Nobody's traveling. There's no commerce. There's no business. There's no one going out. He says the streets are, every, are empty. Everyone is, is inside their home. They boarded up their homes. They're hiding in fear. They're fearful of what's going on. Then he said this. He said, he has broken the covenant. He's speaking about uh, King Sennacherib. He says, Sennacherib has broken the covenant. He's despised the city. He regarded the man. I mean, they're lamenting that they are in trouble. They're lamenting that, that king, the king of Assyria is about to besiege him. He has no regard for them. He has no regard for the covenant. He's pocketed millions of dollars of money. And they're thinking, what are we going to do? We're out of a substantial amount of money in our treasury. They're about to attack us. We're going to lose. We're going to be annihilated by them. What are we going to do, Lord? Then verse 9, he describes the whole situation because they're thinking, well, if this king overtook Israel and he overtook other nations along the way, they overtook Egypt, they're going to they're overtake the whole earth as far as they were concerned. They said this, the earth mourneth and languisheth. Lebanon, which was famous for its forests, its cedar forests, is ashamed and hewn down. In other words, every tree in Lebanon would be chopped out. That meant that they would be defeated and overthrown. Sharon is like a wilderness. The beautifulness of the valley Sharon would be barren like a desert. He said, Bashan and Carmel, which were known for being very fertile areas, fertile areas for growing trees and fruits, they would become, they would shake off their fruits. Judah and Jerusalem is lamenting their problem. They're describing in words that somehow, sometimes as we think about our problems and our challenges, that we don't even have the words to describe how low we feel, how twisted our gut feels, how fearful we are, how barren we are, how insecure we are, how we feel like God is so far away. We see the pronouncement. We see the prayer. We see the praise. We see the problem. Notice verses 10 to 12. We see a presentation. At our lowest point, when our back is against the wall, we feel like we've run out of gas. We feel like there's no help anywhere. God comes. God comes. And God said in verse 10, Now, now, now is always according to God's timeline. Now will I rise, saith the Lord. The psalmist said in Psalm 68 verse 1, Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. God said, Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. You know, when they heard the word now, what a relief to their ears. What a joy to their heart. What a lift, what a shot in the arm. Now will I come. Now will I take care of it. Now will I be there. God was always there, but they needed to hear from God that God was there for them. He says now to Assyria, you shall conceive chafe. You shall bring forth stubble. What he was saying there is, you know what? You think you're going to accomplish much? You're going to accomplish nothing. You think you're going to get much done? You're going to get nothing done. I represent these people. I'm here for them. God said this, your breath, and he's talking about their threatenings. He's talking about their boastings. He says that hurtful speech you made, those terrible things you said to Hezekiah and to Judah. He says, your breath as fire shall devour you. He said, your own words shall eat you up. You're going to eat your own words. You're going to burn in your own words. He said in verse, 11, verse 12, and the people shall be as the burnings of lime, as thorns cut up, shall they be burned in fire. He was telling Assyria this, when I arise, 
When I come for you, you're going to be, I'm going to defeat all of you. There'll be nothing left. There'll be nothing left. And we know that from history. If you study world history, God did away with Assyria. Assyria never rose back up as a world power again. God made a presentation. He was telling them, I've heard your prayers. I'm going to answer you, but I'm going to answer you according to my time. And I know that you praise me, but I also know that you see the problems. And sometimes we imagine the problems being bigger than God. And sometimes we imagine that the problems are bigger than the Word of God. And sometimes we imagine that our prayers are not stronger than the problem. But God says, now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. But notice, we get to one more thing. Now would you notice the priority? God intervened. God solved their problem. God answered their prayer. God delivered them. God was there. This is where it gets good. There's a priority in all this. Earlier I said this. Our challenges, our difficulties, our trials, our gifts sent to us from God. And those gifts are designed to have a response. What is it God wants you to learn? What is it God wants me to get out of this? What is this that God brought in my life that should be life transformational? And you'll notice here for the rest of the chapter, there is a priority for every Christian life. There is a priority, in fact, in this for every unsaved person watching my live stream or here today. The series have been defeated now. God has risen up. The Assyrians have been defeated. And here's what God has to say. Notice verse 13. He's calling his people and he's calling us. Hear ye that are far off what I've done. Now the people far off were people that lived in Jerusalem or the lowland areas of Judah who saw the Assyrians coming they left everything behind and they ran out to a different location to hide. They watched from a distance. They were waiting for a messenger to tell us, can we go back? And God is saying to them, you who ran away, you who are far off, hear what I've got to say. You know, some people, their faith is very small. And when things get tough, they run. They leave. You reach out to them, but they don't want to respond back because they feel a little bit embarrassed that they ran away. They had little faith. He's talking to those who are far away. Then he's talking about those who are near. Notice he says, and ye that are near, you that stayed in Jerusalem, you that stayed in the lowland cities of Judah, ye that are near, acknowledge my might. Now God had already solved the problem. As we'll read later on, the angel of God came down on the Assyrian army. Without Hezekiah lifting a sword, 200,000 men died that night in their tents. They left everything behind. God, single-handedly, without just even lifting a finger, defeated the Assyrians. He said to them that were near, he says, you that are near, you better acknowledge my might. You better acknowledge who I am. You better acknowledge that I solved your problem. You better acknowledge that I answered your prayer. You better acknowledge that I was there when you needed me most. Notice verse 14 now. The sinners in Zion, that's talking about Jerusalem, 
are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Now, there's two things in verse 14. Number one, the sinners and hypocrites are his own people. That's interesting. He's talking about God's people having little faith when they needed to have great faith. He said, you boasted of how big you are, hypocrites. You talk big talk when you had no trial, when you had no difficulty, before your food supply started to fail, your water supply was affected. He said, sinners in Zion, you have little faith. You've got a lot of fear. And fearfulness has surprised the big talkers. I want to challenge you this morning before I get to the next statement. Don't let COVID-19 and the laws of the land paralyze your faith and paralyze your witness and cause you to go backwards. Listen, there comes a time we must obey God rather than man. There's a time God's people need to rise up and stop being paralyzed by all your fears and trust God, though the plague may come, it shall not come near your dwelling. And if it does come, praise God anyway, amen? So here's the, here's the priority. Look at verse 14. Here's verse 14. Who among us Isaiah stood himself in the middle of everything. Who among us shall dwell? That means to live in, to live with. Notice he didn't say, who among us shall live in, shall dwell in. He said, dwell with the devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? Now, if you're not very careful, you'll read that and you'll think, well, is God talking about hell, hell punishment? What's God talking about there? What does he mean? Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? What does he mean? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? Everlasting burnings, devouring fire, is speaking about the holy, wonderful presence of God. Dwelling with the devouring fire is talking about, did you learn from this circumstance? Did you learn from this situation that I put it in your life to draw you closer to me? Did you learn from this that I want you nearer to me, not farther than me? Did you learn from this? I want you to have greater faith in me, not less faith. Did you learn from this that I never fail? Did you learn from this that I answer prayer? Did you learn from this that I still dwell on high? Did you learn from this that I'm God and God alone? Did you learn from this situation? that I love you and I want you closer to me than you've ever been before. Who among us shall dwell with a devouring fire? Fire always speaks in this context about the wonderful presence of God. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Hebrews 12.29. For our God is a consuming fire. We see a devouring fire. We see that God wants his fire burning in your life 
in my life. He wants to consume us with himself. He wants to consume us with his word. There's the character of fire. We see the character of fire. Fire speaks, as I said earlier, about the presence of God. It is a picture of his holiness. It is a picture of his righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1 verses 14 to 15. The Lord Jesus Christ is presented as follows. His eyes are as a flame of fire. His feet, like unto fine brass, is that they burned in a furnace. At his second coming, Malachi said, Jesus will be as a refiner's fire. We find the first mention of this over there in the book of Exodus, where God met Moses in a burning bush. The bush was on fire, but the bush was not consumed. God met with him again on Mount Sinai in a burning fire. God led Israel by a cloud by day, but a pillar by fire by night. God made manifest to Israel in those early days that through fire of his presence for them, his presence near them. He wants his people as he did with Moses. In fact, he told Moses to come near, take your shoes off your feet. The ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Come near to me. There's a character of fire. Read about God answering by fire. Elijah met with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. And he said, we're going to have a test. The God who answers by fire. God sent down his fire. God represented through Elijah that he was the God of fire. We read later on in Acts chapter 2 where God came down on the 120 believers, that early church there at Jerusalem. He came down upon them. And the description is God came down through the Holy Spirit was as cloven tongues of fire. We see the character of fire. We see the cleansing of fire. Fire cleanses. We see the story there of Hananiah, Mishael, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, the three Hebrew young men who were taken in captivity. And uh, we know the story there that Nebuchadnezzar built this monstrous 90-foot image that he wanted everybody to bow down to and worship there. And he said, if you don't worship this image of mine, I'm going to cast you into a burning, fiery furnace. And so these three young men, they would not bow. Thank God for men who do not bow. And thank God for men who do not bend. And they did not bend to that image. They did not bend to that idol. It would cost them much, but they did not bend to that. And listen, when as he, as that, as they, he gave them a second chance, they said, listen, if our God delivers us, that's wonderful. But if our God does not deliver us, we're still not going to bow we're still not going to bend. Nebuchadnezzar got angry. Nebuchadnezzar threw them in that fiery furnace. He looked inside that furnace. He said, did I not cast three men in there? And his wise men said, yes, you did. He said, then why do I see four? And the four of them looks like the son of man. And so he ushered them out. When they came out, there was no spell of burning on them. Their hair was not singed. Their clothes was not burned. In fact, they looked better than they did when they went in. You know what? Fire is cleansing. When those men went in the fire, it reminded us whatever was on their lives before God burned it off. You know why God sends you trials? You know why God sends, puts you through the heat of a trial? That through the fire of the trial, we come out pure. We come out cleaner. We come out holy. God uses the trial of fire to cleanse us. Fire is net for cleansing. God uses fire for cleansing. The purest gold and silver is the gold and silver that goes through the fire. And maybe you're going through a fiery circumstance right now. Praise God for that. Because you know what? There's something God is trying to cleanse out of our lives right now through that trial. There's a character fire. There's a cleansing through fire. There's a closeness of fire. Fire is needed for warmth, for heat, for cooking. When we're cold, we draw near to the fire. You've ever been to a campfire? You've ever gone camping? You build a fire. You do it to get warmth. I think of Acts 28. 
Paul and the 200 plus men that were with him on his ship are shipwrecked. They all made it safe to shore there on the island Melita, now known as the island of Malta. The native people of that island felt pity for those men. They saw them as they came out of the ocean, shivering, wet, cold. The Bible says they made a great bonfire for those men. And as they did so, people were bringing wood to put in there. You know where all those men were? They were getting close to the fire. You know what God's telling us as we study this passage of Scripture? Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? God wants you and I to draw closer to him. He wants us close to the fire, not far from the fire. He wants us by the right fire. He wants us by the fire of his love. He wants us in the fire of his, of his fervency. He wants you and I closer to him, not farther to him. When you leave the parking lot today, draw near to God as he draws near to you. But there's something else. There's a character fire. There's a cleansing through fire. There's a closeness through fire, which you notice the consuming of the fire. Who among us? Who among us here, about 85 cars here in the parking lot? Who among us of the hundreds of people watching my live stream? Who among us? God's people. Heritage Baptist Church. Saved born-again, blood-bought people. Who among us shall dwell with the divine fire? Did you ever figure this out? God never saved us to have a casual relationship. God saved us to have a consuming relationship. God saved us to have a close relationship. And here's what God wants us to understand this morning. God is calling us to be a people consumed with the fire of God in our lives. God wants us a people on fire for God. If you believe that, honk your horn. On fire for God. Lancaster Baptist Church, West Coast Baptist College, one of the outstanding buildings on their campus is named after a brother by the name of Revel. Brother Revel owned a large camper business there back east. Made substantial amounts of money selling camper homes. God put on that man's heart to help the work of the Lord. He had several strokes as he got older. I remember years ago we had a board meeting. Brother Revel was giving his testimony. You can still tell the effects of the stroke was in his life. His speech was stuttering a little bit. And God, the Holy Spirit, started speaking to me, so you better listen to this man. He's got something important for you to say. When Brother Chapel said, Brother Revel, share your testimony with these men. He said, man, I can't do much. I've been in bad health. But since the day I got saved, I've got to fire my heart for God. I want to do something for the Lord. And I'm going to tell you this morning, we ought to be a people that's on fire for God. You ought to be burning bright like John the Baptist. David said, while I was musing, the fire burned. Jeremiah said, his word was in my heart as a burning fire. Paul said, we're to be a peculiar people, zealous or burning with good works. 
The Bible says when Paul was down at Athens, his spirit was stirred. He was on fire when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire? Would you be a people this morning? Would you be a man? Would you be a woman? Would you be a boy? Would you be a girl on fire for God? Would you be on fire for his word? Would you be on fire with his word? Would you be on fire as a witness? Would you be on fire for the work of God? Would you be on fire to do what God wants us to do? If I told you next Sunday, we're not going to have drive-in, we're going to meet, we're going to break the church out into five services, and we're going to meet because it's the right thing to do, would you come? Would you honor God? If I said we're going to have a prayer meeting, would you come and honor God? If I told you we're going to have a soul winning rally, would you come and honor God? Let's be a people that's on fire for God. Who among us? Who among us? shall dwell with the devouring fire. Can I say this this morning, and I don't say it in a disrespectful way. Did you know there have been more fires from riots in the last four months than there have been fires of revival? Did you know we'll have more fires burning through forests than the fire of God burning in our churches? Don't be a Sunday morning only church Christian. Be on fire for God. Say like David. One thing I desire, and that is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Get God's fire in your bones. Get that hardness burnt away. Burn away the chafe. Burn away the callousness. And get a fire from God. Notice quickly. He says, who among us shall dwell? Now, he gives a requirement. I want you to notice this because God, God raises the bar right now. And he says something that is also mentioned in Psalms 15 and Psalms 24, which we don't have time to go into. The requirement he gives is found in verse 15. Who's going to dwell in that divine fire? I mean, who does God allow into his presence? We're supposed to learn from our, our situation but God is working our hearts to deal with some issues in our life. Notice verse 15. Who is that person that can dwell in his presence? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despises the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. There's so much I can say, but let me say this. What's he saying there? God wants you and I, if we're going to dwell in that devouring fire, we've got to come clean. We've got to walk righteously. We've got to put away our hypocrisies. We've got to die to self to our pride. We have to be truthful in our words and our statement. He that despises the gain of oppressions, not taking advantage of other people, not treating people like dirt, putting on one face and being Mr. Kind and Mrs. Nice at church, but then you go back to work and you're Mr. Mean and Miss, Miss very difficult to get along with. that stops his ears from the hearing of blood, that you don't get used to people suffering, that you get used to and callous to that. Or he says here, that you shut your eyes from seeing evil. We need to be like the psalmist David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And so this morning, there's a pronouncement, there's a prayer, there's a praise, there's a problem, there's a presentation, there's a priority. 
But quickly, would you notice as we close? Notice the prize. Verses 16 to 24, I don't have time to do it justice. These next eight verses, oh my goodness. They are precious. What's the prize? What's the result? A dwelling in the devouring fire and in the everlasting burnings. Notice verse 16. First of all, you have a mountaintop experience. You dwell on high. You're off the valley. You're back on the mountaintop. You should dwell on high. You'll have God's defense. His place of defense should be the munitions of rocks. The rocks, Jesus Christ. You'll have a hiding place in Jesus. Verse 16. God meets all your needs. God, bread shall be given him. That was substantial when he said that because their food supply had been affected by the Assyrians. He says, you're going to dwell on high. I'll be your protection. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. God will meet your need. Your supplies will be taken care of. It's a reminder to us when our faith is in God, God never leaves his, his, his people lagging. David said this, I've never seen God's seed begging bread. Notice something else. Look at verse 17. When we're dwelling in the divine fire, he says, Thine eyes shall see the king and his beauty. You know what he's saying there? Jesus looks a lot more pretty when you come out of the, when you, when you get close to him. When you're in the divine fire, you're able to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. You're able to see the loveliness of Christ better than you did when you were far from him. Listen, get in the fire because your eyes will see the king and his beauty. Then he said this, and they shall behold. What is they? Your eyes shall behold the land that is very far off. He's saying heaven looks closer. Heaven looks sweeter. Heaven looks more meaningful to you because you've dwelt in the divine fire. Man, that's good. Amen. Man, you'll get your eyes on heaven in verse 20. Heaven's a city of solemnities, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that should not be taken down. That's substantial. A temple that can never be broken, that can never be invaded, that can never be burned. It's an eternal tabernacle. Jesus Christ is our tabernacle. He says in verse 21, there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams. That's wonderful. A river glorious. Streams abundant. No dryness. Abundance in the picture of a river and stream of flourishing and abundance and fertility. He says, wherein shall go no galley with oars. He's saying, there's no enemy ship coming in there. I mean, he says, there's no uh, foreign adversary coming there with their galley of oars to threaten us. They're not coming in there. God is the protector. God is that river. He says, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. Then he said in verse 23, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our law lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. You know what's happening here? The prize is realizing how good God is. The prize is realizing we understand more of God than we ever knew before. The prize is understanding that God is there as he's precious to us and he makes himself known to us and God is just in all his dealings. Then it gets even better than that. Notice verse 23. He speaks about those who oppose us. Thy tacklings are loosened. They could not well strengthen their mass. They could not spread the sail. You know what he's saying here? The enemy is going to try to make it a threat against you. But they're dealing like with a ship with a broken mass. They've got, they've got a sail that cannot work. They cannot go anywhere. They cannot advance against you. Hey, God is for you, not against you. He says, then is the prey of a great spoil divided. 
Even the lame, even the weak, even the powerless take the prey. Then verse 24, as we pull it together, look at the prize. The inhabitant, the one dwelling in the devouring fire, in the presence of God, who's consumed with God, shall not say, I'm sick. Because God had his people in a place where spiritually they were sick. They were not well. Hey, listen this morning, brother and sister in Christ. We've got unforgiveness. We've got bitterness. Evil speech. Anger problems. Wrath problems. Disrespect. Unable to submit. Bitterness. Wrath. Whatever it may be. We're spiritually sick. We have sick. We have no faith. Little faith. We're sick, the Bible says. But there, when we're dwelling in the fire, the person there can say, I'm not sick. And then he said this, and the people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Oh, man, this is a wonderful chapter. Who among us shall dwell in the devouring fire? Would you draw near to God? It's one thing to walk on fire. It's a whole different thing to dwell in the fire, to dwell in the presence of God. He walks with me and talks with me and tells me I am his own. Would you come close to God this morning? Would you come close to God and dwell in that everlasting fire? And if you're here today and you're not saved, God tells you that you can have the forgiveness he speaks of here. You can have the, God, the forgiveness of your iniquities as you come to Christ. He forgives you your sins. As he said in a previous verse, he will save you. God wants everyone to go to heaven. God wants everyone to know for sure that heaven's their home. You can be saved. You can be saved from your sins today because Jesus Christ, God's son, died for every one of our sins. He died on the cross. He satisfied all of God's demands for our sins and he offers to you the gift of eternal life. Two things and we're done. Number one, I challenge every one of God's people to dwell in the devouring fire and in the everlasting burnings and to see the king in his beauty and to see the land that is far off and to realize that the Lord is unto us a broad rivers and streams that no galleys shall come in with oars and to recognize the Lord is our lawgiver and our judge and our king and to recognize that they that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. I want to challenge you this morning to find security and comfort and draw near to God. Secondly, if you're not saved this morning, I'm going to help you find Christ today. You know in your heart of hearts, God wants you to be saved. You know that you need to be born again today. You need to know for sure that you're going to heaven today. On this 26th day of July, you can be saved and born again. You can accept Jesus Christ today to be your Savior. 